This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Create your own one-of-a-kind engagement ring with Brilliant Earth, the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Brilliant Earth's exclusive unique designs are brought to life by master jewelers, and they offer free shipping and returns on all orders. Order today for delivery by Christmas and receive a surprise gift for the purchase of an engagement ring. See terms of the special offer and to shop all of Brilliant Earth's selections, go to brilliantearth.com manliness. That's brilliantearth.com manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Our ancestors were able to navigate long distances, find water, and even predict the weather simply by looking at their environment. My guest today says we still have this nature instinct inside of us, and with little practice, we can revive it. His name is Tristan Gooley. He's an outdoorsman and author, and his latest book is The Nature Instinct. Learn to find direction, sense danger, and even guess nature's next move faster than thought. Today on the show, we discuss how humans have the ability to simply look at something in nature and immediately see direction, time, or weather conditions. While modern humans have lost this ability, Tristan makes the case that with some practice, anyone can relearn it. We then discuss how learning how to read nature intuitively makes us more engaged with our surroundings and able to see more significance in our environment. Tristan then shares signs to look for in nature to anticipate animal behavior, find water, and predict the weather. After listening to this show, you'll never look at squirrels the same way. Be sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash nature instinct. Tristan joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Tristan Gooley, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we had you on last year or a few years ago. It's been it's been a while. To talk about your book, The Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs. You got a new book out, The Nature Instinct, Relearning Our Lost Intuition for the Inner Workings of the Natural World. How is this book, The Nature Instinct, different from some of the previous work you've done and writing you've done about reading nature and like how to figure out directions just by looking at a hill? What's What's the big idea in the nature instinct? What I've done is taken my my general approach, which is that everything outdoors is a clue, and just looked at the ones that, if we practice using them a little bit, give us the sort of reading of our, our surroundings that I believe our ancestors had and which I think I see in indigenous cultures to this day. So the idea is so like before, and I we went through some of the tips and sort of the ideas in the last podcast. Like you could the idea in the previous book is like, hey, you look for the way the tree, a tree is pointed or the the leaves are growing on a tree, and you can deduct the direction that, you know, which one's which way is north, south, east, west. In the nature instinct, the idea is you're gonna skip beyond the deliberation where you can just look at the tree and see north. Yeah, what happened was a, a couple of things happened to me very personally. I was I was teaching people how to use what I call the check effect, the the shape of the branches to find north and south in a tree. They they grow close to horizontal on the on the south side, close to vertical on the north side. And lots of people in a group could see this, but one or two people couldn't. And I thought, that's odd. And I showed them a couple of techniques to to spot these things. Like if you squint, it filters out small details, and you you see the bigger shapes and patterns. And that and we got there in the end. And round about that time, I was going on a car journey, and a tree announced direction to me. Now there isn't language that does this sensation perfect justice, because as as we'll discover as we discuss it, this is stuff that's going on quite deep in our brains, deep in a historical sense, what used to be called our lizard brain. And 
this was all quite strange and new to me, but but I, I had noticed quite a few years ago that very occasionally I would see direction in the night sky. So what happens for a lot of people is you can show them how to to spot what we call the plow over here in the UK and what, what you guys call the Big Dipper. And you use that to find the North Star. And it's it's very methodical and it's straightforward. And once you've done it a few times, it's 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 almost child's play. But what happens after after doing it maybe a few times a week over a month, there comes a moment where you will see north in the night sky, just in the way that you can see direction in trees. And this this book, The Nature Instinct, is really the patterns that allow us to do that, which I mean, if you if you talk to any indigenous people and you say to them, how did you do that thing in the wild? And it can be pretty much anything. What you tend to find is that they find it extremely hard to describe what they're doing in the same way that if you ask somebody who's been riding a bike for 20 years or driving a car for 50 years, how do you do that? The It's quite hard to articulate because it's so deep within our brain. Psychologists call it the difference between fast and slow thinking. And the, the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, wrote, a, wrote an excellent book looking at that area, mainly to do with, with economics. But exactly the same type of psychology applies, and from my perspective, applies more originally to the outdoors. So this is uh, what the nature instinct is. It's this idea of intuition, this fast thinking, and it's all about pattern recognition. And it's something that you develop with just more and more experience. Like an example you gave of sort of in modern Western, you know, civilized cultures of the fireman who went to a building and he went in and without it really even knowing deliberately, you know, analytically why they need to get out of that building, he said, we got to get out of here. And as soon as they got out of there, the building collapsed. Yes. And again, the, the mechanics of that were very hard for that individual to explain immediately afterwards. But, but after, because it was such a key thing and, and the people researching it, the psychologists researching it really needed to know what had happened, that I, I believe they spent quite a lot of time getting to what was actually quite, quite simple clues. And it was to do with temperature from below and sound not quite fitting the expected pattern. So they were expecting a fire on the same level as them. And that would present certain sounds and certain temperature sensations. And those two things didn't match, which gave a feeling, not a, it's not a sort of, it's not like a sort of crystal clear report that comes through that says the fire's not on this level, it's below you. It's, it's much more that sensation that we've all had, which is something's not right. And in a fire, fire situation, something's not right is akin to the, the survival feeling that we can all get if you're outdoors and there are dangerous predators in the area, you're much more likely to be tuned to those sorts of signs. But we do, we haven't, we haven't lost any of this ability. We just, we're just focusing it in different areas. So if you're in a car and the, the driver in front of you drives at all erratically, that's something we pick up these days, but it's exactly the same, exactly the same skill. And that's why, you know, teenage drivers, insurance costs more than people have been driving for, for 20 years is because we, you know, when you've been driving 20 years, you, you spot these patterns. And, and when you're, you know, perhaps 18, you're, you're too busy thinking about indicate, you know, signal maneuver, that type of stuff. So this idea of pattern recognition, you know, if you're exposed to it long enough and frequently enough, you can start seeing things or noticing things that other people wouldn't notice. So going back to this, you know, indigenous cultures, uh, I, I've read about, and I think you've talked about them as well, like Inuit, for example, that live in the north of Canada. Like they, they can navigate like these basically ice deserts, right? That everything, everything's white, everything kind of pretty much looks the same. But 
because they are so familiar with that environment, they can like recognize like different types of snow and say, well, if this snow, this type of snow means this. And so I'm going to keep going that way. And they can do that because they've been exposed to it. But if I were to be dropped off in the, you know, the great white North of Canada, I would get lost probably because I couldn't make those distinctions. Yes. And those patterns are global. So exactly the same techniques being used on the snow by the Inuit can be used by Pacific Island navigators on the ocean. And there are documented examples of captains of, of ships, of, of, of modern ships, perhaps a, a sailing vessel being asleep. They're, they're off watch, they're, they're, they're down below decks, and they'll just suddenly come up on deck and say, something's not right. And what's happened there is, is they, their body and their senses have become tuned to the, the point of sail, the direction the boat is taking over the water. And exactly the same thing happens with, with sleds over ice and, and, and that sort of thing, where a certain rhythm develops. And if you, if you change direction, the sound, the feel, absolutely everything changes. It might not be, it, it's only dramatic if we make it dramatic. So a lot of developing the sense has to do with what we, what we care about. And our brain has evolved to attach more value. That's what we mean by care. So if, for example, you've had a problems with burglars in your, in your neighborhood, you're going to attach a lot more weight and importance to strange sounds outside your home. It's exactly the same process to any of these things. If the, if the sound of the snow underneath you means you've changed direction and the last two or three times that happened, you got lost and spent 24 hours trying to find your way home, we're automatically going to start to care more about those sorts of sounds and rhythms. The, the, the actually noticing them is very, very easy. It's just a case of deciding to do that, attaching a importance to it. And then our brain will do the rest because we have evolved for our brain to take shortcuts. It's part of our survival toolkit. None of us and none of our ancestors would have survived. Well, I should say none of us would exist because our ancestors wouldn't have survived if they had to go through a very slow, methodical approach every time. If they had to sort of sit there and sort of scratch their head and go, well, the the kind of feel of this snow and ice or the feel of this water or even the feel of these sand dunes has changed a little bit. Now, let me try and remember, what does that mean? That, that you know, in, in evolutionary terms, that's a, that's a bit of a non-starter because there'll be another species that, that gets there a bit quicker. And that's really what we mean by survival in a broader evolutionary sense. So all of us, all, every human being has this ability to look at a tree, for example, and see direction, but we have to relearn it. How long does it take or what, what does it require to relearn this skill? Like, do you have to be in the wilderness for extended periods of time or is this something you can sort of gradually pick up as you walk around your suburban neighborhood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm most motivated as a researcher and then a writer by patterns that are as global as possible, as accessible as possible and with quick meaning. So there are, there are plenty of these sorts of signs that I come across that are just too rare. And they're, they're, they're of less interest to me, and they, they don't tend to make it into the book. So what I really like is there's, where a sign is, can be used in this way to give us a fast sense, uh, an intuitive reading of our surroundings, I, I promote it. I call it a key. So a sign will give us meaning, but we might have to think about it a little bit. Whereas a key is something that if we do practice looking at it, so in the examples we've been talking about, the key there is, is, is something I nicknamed the ramp. So what we find is that the wind shapes ice, sand dunes, water waves, even rocks to have two distinct angles, a, a shallow gradient on the windward side and a steeper gradient 
on the downwind side. Now that can apply to a, a, a sand dune that might be 200 meters high, but it might apply to a ripple of ice that is, is only half an inch high. Exactly the same physics is taking place. It, it can apply to grass. So instead of thinking we have to go and join the Inuit or we have to go out to the Pacific, we can actually see a very, very similar pattern in, in grass that's exposed to the wind. It's, there's a, a shallow gradient on the side the winds come from, a slightly steeper gradient on the downwind side. And we just practice looking at that. And this is where the caring comes in, because if you just sort of look at it and go, ah, whatever, your brain's not going to invest the energy needed for the shortcut. But if you actually spend even quarter of an hour walking using just the, the shape of grass, your, your brain does, uh, I'm sort of giving it a little bit more of a sort of character here, but it sort of effectively sort of goes, oh, so you're serious about this. Oh, okay. Well, if, you, if you're serious about this and this is actually means something to you, then yeah, sure, we'll make this happen for you. And, and that's what we tend to find is that I find it on expeditions. The sun is the very first example. The sun is due south in the middle of the day, but on a longer expedition, I might be aware that it is passing through southeast at a particular moment, and I can do calculations of sort of saying, okay, we're before the September equinox, therefore it's going to rise seven degrees north of east, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all very, in psychology terms, all very slow thinking. But by the end of the first day, and certainly into the second day of an expedition, my brain's sort of saying to me, please don't do any more of that slow, laborious thinking. It's, it's, it's really grinding me down. Here, I'll just give you the answer. That's what it feels like. I mean, psychologists will probably have slightly better terminology than I'm giving you there, but that's, that's what it actually feels like is you can, you can just sort of go, you can look at a landscape and you can go, it's this way. Uh, and similar to how we were saying sort of earlier, if somebody sort of said, how do you know that? You'd have to sort of take a step back and go, well, I, I kind of know what my brain's doing, but I wasn't, I wasn't witness to every single calculation that it did there. Well, you talk about in the book, um, hunters, people who hunt have probably experienced this. I know I have the few times I've gone hunting. When I first went out there, I really didn't know what was going on. But then I had a guide who started showing me things like, okay, look at the tree. You can see the rut marks. Look at the grass. You can see this is where they're bedding down. And after a while, after like, I think two days, I could just, I just start, I just started seeing the things and I knew what it meant. I didn't have to think about it anymore. And it happened pretty fast. Yeah. That's a, that's a great example where care is part of it. Historically hunting and, and obviously for, for some communities to this day, hunting is the difference between life and death. Therefore the, the, the care is there. And, you know, if you are trying to effectively outcompete an animal, uh, even if you've got the help of a, a weapon of some sort, if you notice that certain ear movements precede flight behavior, like a, a deer heading off at speed, that, that is, that is the difference between success or failure, kill or not, success or not, and survival or not. And in, in the nature instinct, what I, what I try and do is, is break down every single one of these behaviors. So from the face to the tail, and then looking at it's, it's basically body language broken down into the, the typical behavior responses. So to give you an example, if we know that prey animals are going to lift their heads when they sense something in their environment that they're not entirely comfortable with, we can tell when they sense us. So that's that's you know the sort of thing I think most people would probably pick up intuitively without having to do an awful lot of thinking about it. But if we then give a little bit more attention to head tail behavior, we find in certain species like squirrels their next move is quite often predicted by by tail flicking. That that is a sign to their their 
the conspecifics that I'm aware of something out there and I may be about to go into flight behavior. So that's that's one very simple key, but but so much of this this sort of reading of environment is about bolting two quite simple keys together to come up with something which to the novice seems, you know, quite advanced, but it but it isn't really. So in the case of a squirrel, if we if we put the peak, as I call this kind of awareness behavior, that the, the key is it, my name for it is 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 the peak. The head is lifted. We know if we take one step towards that squirrel, the next likely thing is going to be flight behavior. And with each animal, we can just look at that key. Okay, the flight key, wh- where is it going to go? In the case of a squirrel, it's going to head to a tree. We all know that. But not any tree. It's probably going to head to a tree that has a network. So it might run past, it might dart past three isolated trees and then go up the tree that has branches that interconnect with with other trees. So you can now see there are two, what a lot of this stuff is common sense with hindsight, but is, is again, hidden in plain sight. So if, if we tap a friend on the shoulder and say, you see that squirrel there? When we take two steps towards it, it's going to get up onto its haunches. It's going to sit up. We're then going to take two more steps. It's going to run past those three trees. It's going to go up that tree there. We're going to add another key here. It's going to go into its refuge uh, behavior, which is around the back of the tree. We start to put these things together. And, and that's, that's, I think, at the point where sort of people go, wait, wait a minute. This is like, this is weird. This is kind of, this is like a sixth sense or something. It's, it's not. It's simple keys put together. In the case of some of the deer I see near me, very similar behaviors. We just kind of tweak our knowledge of the key for that species. Fallow deer are going to go uphill towards trees. Now, if you predict somebody, we're going to walk towards that deer, it's going to lift its head, then it's going to run in that direction towards those trees. Simple, simple pieces, simple keys put together, but they lead to something which we've lost, but is is very retrievable. So, you know, we're listening to this, people are like, okay, great. You can develop the ability to, you know, look at a tree or look at an animal, predict its behavior instantly. Like, all right, so what? I mean, what do you think the benefit is for people to relearn this nature instinct? Well, it's not entirely practical. I I never, with any of my work, I never start from the sort of point of view that life will <laughs> life will stop if you don't learn this stuff. So my view is always about uh, experience, connection, and the the feeling of engagement and the the again quite hard to describe positive feelings that come from that there's a there's a big movement all over the western world at the moment towards mindfulness but actually when you quite often when you pin people down and say what do you actually mean by mindfulness and, and if we add to that people go time in nature is good for us lots of studies are saying time in nature is is helps our mental and our physical health but but for me and i think a lot of people out there if somebody sort of taps me on the shoulder and says you should spend time in nature and you should be more mindful I hope I'm polite enough not to not to say what I'm thinking, but you know my in- initial thoughts to people saying that that's that, that's lovely nebulous concepts. It's it's largely meaningless. But if we tickle our brain by giving giving ourselves to something to look for, which when when we practice looking for it, it then leads to this intuitive sense, and with that, quite a positive feeling. It's I sometimes liken it to feeling like your brain has been tickled. Do you know that feeling when you're you're either reading a, a detective novel or you're watching a, a murder mystery type thing on TV or in a film and you solve the mystery. So you've seen the clue. Oh, yeah. it's, it's definitely. I love that feeling. Yeah. And that, that is the positive feeling. That feeling comes. And in fact, that whole genre of murder mystery puzzles like crossword, Sudoku, any puzzle you name, all of that, I firmly believe, comes because our brain has evolved to get 
pleasure from solving puzzles. And originally that was to reward us for understanding what's going on around us. So instead of finishing a crossword and thinking, I feel good, I feel clever about that, we, we can use similar parts of our brain to actually go, I think it's about to rain because the birds are making that, that sound again. And we get a very similar, we've solved a similar puzzle. We're just using our brains for what they originally evolved to do. And uh, my take is that they, uh, they, they, they doubly reward us for it because they, <laughs> our brains sort of saying, finally, you've worked out what I'm for. And in my experience, one of the things that learning how to read nature like this on an intuitive level, it's like, it's empowering. I think oftentimes for people in the Western world, there's a disconnect from them and the environment. And so there's this idea that the, the environment or the wilderness is scary, random, et cetera. And there are parts of it's just sort of random, right? But as you highlight in the book, there is a, there's like a system going on that if you know where to look, you can see the gears working in the background. And once you see those gears moving, it feels good. It feels, feels good to know that information. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point because I think in, in a lot of areas of knowledge, people feel that there are experts and there's this kind of cabalistic knowledge and I'm excluded, that group over there, good luck to them. They know it, I don't. And there's this kind of invisible wall between us. But there are, there are different reasons for that feeling. But one of the big ones is actually language. I, I feel very strongly that people shouldn't be put off any engagement with nature because of vocabulary. And what so often happens, and we've all probably had this experience, is you walk with somebody and they start spouting off names. Oh, there's that wildflower and da, 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 and there's that and, and that bird. Is it this species or that species? And when people talk like that, if you're not, if you're not, if that's not your lingo, there's an instant feeling of exclusion. Whereas the thing I so often say to people and I feel really strongly about is that there is no right name for anything. So for this sort of engagement and to develop these sorts of skills, language is right at the end of what's necessary and you can do the whole lot without any names at all so we notice we notice colors we notice shades we notice shapes we notice patterns basically those are important and they are to me a global language so the you know in a in a tribal historical sense you you could notice the body language of of a bird and know that it's about to take off and then you could debate for another three weeks what the right name for that bird is. It doesn't change the body language or the fact that you've sensed that it's about to take off. Yeah. And I think one thing you talked about too is that there's this, I guess, conservationist, one of the sort of metrics they use to determine whether someone's in tune with their environment is the number of species, plant species they can list in their local area. You say that that's actually, like you said earlier, it's not a useful metric because you might know the names, but then that's that's as far as your knowledge goes of that fauna or animal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can, if if we look at young children, they they don't take to names terribly quickly, but they learn things like stinging nettles and round where I am, things like brambles, things like that. That you, anything that causes pain is a lesson that we learn a lot, a lot more quickly than than names. There are, you could be a hundred common names for a, a wildflower. And I, I get into these conversations where, where people say, ah, oh, but that's why we use the Latin. And I, I always end up sort of saying something along the lines of, you know, the, the Latin's not so strong in the heart of Borneo and they know their plants really well. So there's, there's no, there is no right name, but there is recognition of patterns. And that is a different sort of language. Yeah, another benefit that I think comes from relearning this nature instinct that I, that I got from your book, but also just my experience 
learning how to do this stuff is that it gives life more meaning. You know, there's there's a sort of uh, people in writing there's a crisis of meaning in modern life. But I think the nature instinct is, is one small way where you can inject more meaning into your life. Like you can look at the world and say that means something. And I don't know, there's something fulfilling about that. Thanks. Yeah. And I, I, that's certainly one of the, one of the things I, I hope to achieve with this book. And for me, the tipping point personally, which is now something I try and share because I think it is, it can be the difference for people deciding whether to give this a go or not is very early on in my life. I mean, I, I sort of got to the point where I'd, I'd go, Oh, well, I hope the, I hope it's not a cloudy day because then I can see the sun and I can use the sun to find direction or I hope I can see the stars or, you know, by the time I was in my early twenties, the, the collection of signs was probably big enough that I was hopeful of finding one out there. But there came a point where my whole philosophy changed, which is now everything outdoors is a sign. Literally everything has some meaning because nothing is random. And that stretches all the way from the wildest parts of, of planet Earth where we might be noticing that a sudden spike in the number of insects is telling us that there's water nearby, all the way up to urban examples. You know, shops are not random. Somebody somebody spent a lot of money to put a store somewhere. So although I'm focusing on nature, the, the philosophy applies to literally everything. The, the 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 color of the side of a building is trying to tell us, you know, something about the amount of light and moisture, which in turn is telling us direction. The way people move is analogous to the way animals move. It's not random. Any one individual might decide to go somewhere strange on any particular day, but a group of people moving along a street, you know, late in the day heading towards a station, that sort of thing is not a, it's not a random, not a, not a random pattern. So I, um, I, you know, feel, feel free to, to fire it back at me, but I've, I've yet to have an example given to me where I'm left thinking, there is no sign in that. Sometimes it takes me a while to work out what it might be. And sometimes the, the, the sign isn't, you know, super powerful, but there is, I believe, a sign in everything. And once, once people sort of become open to that sort of idea, then every minute outdoors becomes very, very exciting because instead of it being a thought, oh, if I'm really lucky, I might find one of these things that, that, you know, Tristan is calling a sign. It, it quickly becomes, Everything is a sign. So if I look at something, the thought is, what, what is it? And, and then you've got your kind of murder mystery feeling. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Saks Underwear makes the most comfortable underwear for men, and it all starts with their patented ballpark pouch, which is these internal mesh panels. Keeps everything in place down there. No more chafing, no more sticking. Super comfortable. And every pair is made with the highest quality materials, including super soft, moisture-wicking fabric with non-chafing, flat-out seams. My favorite go-to pair of Saks Underwear is the Kinetic Boxer Brief. It's got the ballpark pouch, which is fantastic. It's got a compression short feel to it, which I like when I'm doing barbell squats down in the garage gym. Just like that feeling just really comfortable they come in really handy particularly in these hot humid oklahoma summers and with the holidays coming you're looking for a gift for somebody give the gift of comfort with a pair of Saks underwear if you'd like to try this out for yourself or maybe for someone else in your life got a deal for you go to saxunderwear.com aom you'll save 10 percent and get free shipping on a pair of Saks underwear again that's Saks underwear s-a-x-x that's two x's saxunderwear.com aom to get 10 percent off and free shipping get your gifts ready 
Now, get a pair or two for yourself, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. Also by Indochino. So if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that Indochino has been a longtime supporter of the podcast. I've talked about my navy blue suit that I got from them. With Indochino, you can get a custom made-to-measure suit for about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at the department store. The process is a lot of fun. You get to customize your suit first, how you want the lapels to look, whether you want pleats or no pleats on your pants, the cuffs on the pants. Then you follow their measuring guide, submit those measurements, and in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suits sent directly to your door. But Indochino does more than just suits. They also can do custom made-to-measure shirts as well as custom made-to-measure overcoats. And right now, they got their Black Friday event. It's going on now. Until December 1st, you can get custom suits for just $289 and more, plus their best price of the year in overcoats and shirts. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off. Total purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com when entering manliness at checkout, plus shipping's free. That's Indochino.com promo code manliness for $30 off. Your total purchase of $399 or more. It's an incredible deal for made-to-measure clothing. You really have no excuse anymore to wear clothing doesn't fit. One more time, Indochino.com promo code manliness to get $30 off total purchase of $399 or more. And now back to the show. Yeah, and it causes you to engage with the world in a more active way. And I, I, I really like that feeling. Another kind of high-level concept that you talk about in the nature instinct that I thought was interesting was this idea, and I've never heard of it before, but it was this idea of the umwelt or umwelt. Did I pronounce it? I think it's German or umwelt. What is that and what insights can it give us to developing the nature instinct? It was one of the great joys of this book for me because it had to be pointed out to me that the word author is connected to the word authority. I, I, I wasn't a genius when it came to that little quite simple connection, but nobody gets commissioned to write a book unless they've proved that they are expert enough in that field that the world will have an interest in what they have to say about it, uh, which is, again, sort of slightly obvious stuff. But the, the great joy in writing any book is, is you you enter it with, with a level of knowledge which is high enough to justify the exercise from a publisher's point of view and a reader's point of view. But, but you always learn little, little things along the way. And that, that is so, so exciting from my perspective. And this, this, I don't know the exact way to pronounce it. I'm guessing as it's, it's German. I think it's Umwelt, but I, I, my German is, is, is close to non-existent. So forgive me anyone if I've got that wrong, but I, I've only ever seen it in print, but I'm very familiar with the concept now, which is that this is the, the landscape and the environment as perceived by another creature, which initially doesn't sound that exciting. But when when scientists start looking into this, some really quite bizarre stuff starts to happen because quite often we can see creatures that have much, much smaller bodies and brains than us doing things that look a bit smarter or certainly a bit more able than us. The, the most beautiful example, and it's one I cite in the book, which is the jackdaw going for a locust. So the bird sees sees the locust and the locust is, is moving in front of the bird and the bird identifies a meal. But this, the locust has evolved to notice the predators there, notice that moving is, is not the right thing to do. So the locust freezes, which is another of the keys. And what is interesting is at this point, the bird ceases to be able to see the locust, that the, the meal has become invisible, not in a sort of it's no longer sort of grabbing my attention, as in as far as scientists can tell, that actual that there is no vision there anymore. It's 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 almost like somebody's turned off the lights. And this is why we see freezing so much in nature and why we we instinctively quite often do it. If if we're if we're walking through a woods hopeful of seeing some wildlife and we catch something moving uh, around us, it's quite it is quite a sort of intuitive um 
instinctive response to to freeze. But the more the more time we think about the, the umfeld, the more we realise that it's not that animals sense the world like us; they just don't have language like English attached to it. It's they are sensing an entirely different world, and that's where I mean when I'm when I'm spending time with. If we come back to squirrels, if you wave your your hand and imitate the motion of a, a squirrel's tail, it feels, you know, hilarious because you, you feel like a bit of an idiot. And I, you know, my my family and I were were over in um in New York recently, and we're in Central Park, and I was having a conversation in commas with a squirrel there by waving my hand, and beneath the beneath the sort of ridiculousness of of how how it looks there is something genuine going on there because the, the squirrels i can't tell exactly what's going on in their brain but they definitely they are definitely picking up the sign and and sort of hardwired into them that motion has a meaning now my my take is that that meaning doesn't quite fit with the rest of what they're seeing as in they they're not thinking wow that's a big squirrel they're thinking i'm getting a sign with meaning and that is an instant fast understanding of what's going on somewhere but they're then probably getting the subsequent hang on a minute type feeling as well because because the other signs and patterns aren't aren't fitting it so through through unveiled the little the little insights we get into how different creatures are experiencing their environment allows us to have more faith and believe a little bit more that these signs do actually work that way i mean another example is Prey, prey animals like rodents have to be very, very sensitive to birds overhead because birds of prey can swoop down and, and it's, uh, it's game over. So they, they are tuned to the shape of birds. They don't relate to birds in the, in the same way that, you know, bird lovers around the world might do. They might buy a guidebook and they might say, ah, oh, so, so it's got kind of, it's got bars on its tail feathers and it's, it's the ring around its eye is this color. That's a very, very slow human way of looking at a bird. A, a prey animal will just will just sense a shape, and if that shape is of a bird with a short neck, it's gone instantly. It's not, as far as science can tell, it is not the rabbit or the rodent or whatever it is. Is not sitting there thinking, yeah, it looks a little bit like predator A, which can kill me, but but not at all like predator B, which is safe. Okay, if it looks like the one that can kill me, I'm gonna I'm gonna head off. All it does is sense a shape, and that is its umbel. That is its its whole reading of the of the sky is, is as far as we know and my best guess is it's not even sensing a bird it's sensing a shape which means run for cover all right so we've been talking about this stuff on a high level we talked about the benefits of developing this nature instinct i think there's a big case for it not in a practical sense i think a lot of people think i'm going to learn this stuff so if, if i ever get lost in the woods yeah it'll probably come in handy but i think most on a day-to-day it just gives more meaning, enriches your life. But to develop that nature instinct, we have to learn these things deliberately first. And then they, with practice, they become uh, encoded. So it just becomes like instinct. So let's talk about some of these patterns. You, we've mentioned a few throughout. We've, we talked about the ramp that we see in nature in different places that indicate wind direction. What are some of your other favorite signs in nature that once once people notice that know that they're there notice that they're there they start seeing them everywhere and it tells them information about their world one of my favorites is 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 a good one for people to learn early on because it stacks the odds in your favor if you've ever had that experience of of going outdoors into a into a rural or, or semi-wild environment and thinking ah this is going to be this is going to be a feast for the senses i'm going to see a lot of wildlife and a lot of nature happening in inverted commas and then after 20 minutes you get that feeling doesn't seem to be a lot going on here. Well, that's it's partly because 
because we're there and we haven't necessarily settled into the landscape. So there's a lot of, lot of, lot of creatures out there watching us to see our next move. But there are things we can do to massively stack the odds in our favor. And there are the keys I call the edge is a nice, simple one. So in ecology terms, it's known as an ecotone where two landscape types meet each other. We get a massive spike in activity. And when I, when I first sort of was getting familiar with this sort of concept, I, I thought, well, I've, I've noticed that happening, but I don't really understand why. I mean, what's the logic? And it's a lot of it's very simple maths. If you've got woodland meeting a field, open country, for the sake of argument, you might have 50 species that, that need woodland to live in and 50 species that need an open field to live in. And there might be 50 species that need both. There is only one part of the landscape where you're conceivably going to see 150 species. Now, if we imagine those are 150 prey species, we're going to see a spike in predator activity. And indeed, what we tend to find is these edges are, are sort of mini highways. We've got the prey moving up and down them. We've got the predators focusing on that as well. So instead of us scanning, if we, if we had, you know, in gambling terms, you know, if, if, you know, we absolutely have to see something happen and we've only got five minutes in a landscape, there's no point scanning the whole landscape. The animals aren't doing it and, and they're the ones that really know. You focus on the edge. And then we add another key, which, which I nickname the muzzet, which comes from an old medieval English hunting term, which is the, the little sort of the mini highways through undergrowth. So if we imagine we've got a wood touching a field, there will be some undergrowth there, perhaps some, some thorns, some brambles, some things like this. There will be lots of animals that, that can't pass freely through that. So any, anything bigger than a, you know, a small rodent is not going to be you know, moving randomly through that. So we find these, sometimes they're tunnels, but they always exist. So it's not like you have to go and search for, search for half an hour. You'll be able to see one within a couple of minutes quite easily. So then we've got the edge where most of the activity is happening. And this little kind of highway, which is, it's a funnel, it's a pinch point, it's where stuff, you know, is going to happen. The final key we add is time. So we, we will, again, the, the maths is really quite, quite clear here. We're going to see a lot less in the middle of the day and the middle of the night than we are at dawn and dusk. The, the reason for that is that in evolutionary terms, prey has its best chance of, in sense terms, outwitting predators when it's half light because the nocturnal animals can't use their incredible night vision. You know, animals like owls in, in twilight are at no greater advantage, whereas the middle of the night, of course, they, they've got their trump card. In the middle of the day, a lot of prey animals are extremely vulnerable to being that well lit. So, so if we add the, the time, I mean, in the book, I give it this, this sort of funny nickname, uh, the clepsydra, which is just a Greek name for a water clock, because I'm just trying to get people to think about time differently. And then there, what, I, what I'm encouraging people to do is think about the edge, think about the muzzet, the little highway through it, and then think about not clock time, but, for example, sunset time, and then relate that to weather. So if we put all the pieces together, we find it's been very dry for five days. There's been a little bit of rain. We normally see activity around about 20 minutes past sunset, but because it's been dry and there's been a little bit of water, we got used to the idea that that brings our, our nature clock forward a bit. So we're actually going to head out at sunset and suddenly you see sort of four animals out there. Whereas if you'd had an hour just looking at the whole landscape at the wrong time, you'd see nothing. I think one nature instinct that people would like to develop is the ability to predict weather, right? That sort of old, you know, 
maybe their great grandfather, grandfather's like, I could, I feel like it's going to rain today. Like they could feel it in their bones. Is that really a thing? Are there like signs that you can look for in your environment that can help you figure out if it's going to rain or if it's going to be snowy, if it's going to be foggy? Have you found any tried and true signs? Yeah, definitely. And um, I've uh, I've been doing a lot of research in this area and there are, are examples in, in all my books about the weather. And it, it is quite a good example of the, the big, quite dramatic signs all the way down to really very subtle stuff that, that takes focus and experience. So the biggest one is, is like so many, so many nature signs is related to, to, to wind. If we just make a habit of noticing where the winds come from in very, very crude terms, you know, we don't even have to sort of, we're not sort of getting to the point of sort of saying it's south, southwest or anything like that. It can just be, you know, I've noticed it comes from between those two buildings or it comes over, you know, that, that mast on a hill or something like that. We just, okay, that's where it's coming from now. And then, you know, a few hours later, we go, wait a minute, it's changed. That is the sort of thing that our ancestors, that was, that's just in neon lights in, in terms of indigenous and I believe ancient reading of landscapes. It's just, just for the simple reason that if the, if a, if a constant wind, you know, shifts direction by more than 20 or 30 degrees, uh, something's on its way because again, nothing is random. So that is, that is a, a very strong indication that a, a frontal system may be about to go through. Then we move to uh, quite bold uh, cloud signs. So what I encourage everybody to do is, is cheat early on. Wait till you've had a really good, one of those quite sort of well-established good weather times. It doesn't have to be summer at all, but where you had sort of four days of, of, of blue skies, light winds, you start to get that feeling that this is going to last forever. We know, we know it doesn't. And then, and then cheat, you know, when you're, when you're early on, this is about going from, from slow to fast thinking. What, what we do is we, we say, okay, right, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat. I look at the forecast. Oh, okay. So I can see that there's a front coming through uh, and it's due to start raining in, in 24 hours. I'm just going to scour the sky, you know, every once every hour over the intervening time. And you start to notice wispy sort of candy floss, you know, cirrus clouds. And then, and then there's this kind of almost like sort of thin frosting cirrostratus cloud comes. That's the one that gives us halos and things like this. And like so many of these things to start with, we're, we're having to kind of sell the concept to ourselves. We're having to convince ourselves that this stuff works. Okay. Well, I'm feeling a, a slight pickup in the wind. I've noticed that it, it's backing. It's moved anti-clockwise. It was, it's no longer over that, that tower. It's, it's now coming from over that, that wood. And wait a minute. It was completely blue three hours ago. And I'm now seeing little bits of, you guys call it something else. We call it candy floss. I forgot what it's called in, <laughs> uh, over there, but, but, um, <laughs> what, what is the name? Oh, cotton candy. Cotton, cotton candy, candy, yeah. Cotton yeah, candy. Thanks. And then we do that a few times cheating. And then, and then we do start to go, okay, this stuff works. And then the, the, the next thing that happens is, is that we, we just, we move from knowing what's going to happen with a bit of help from modern forecasting to actually just sort of going, Oh, the weather's about to change. Uh, and then when it does, we get that huge, you know, solve, solve the mystery type feeling. And so that's pretty much, I wouldn't say it's with us automatically forever then, but like so many of these things is that you've got to, you've got to push it, push it up the hill a little bit and then it just rolls down the other side and you have a lot of fun with it. And some of my other favorite signs were animals and looking at their behavior to help you figure out about your environment. Um, so this idea that I think cows, they typically stand north, south 
typically, you know, it's not always, but oftentimes. So that's a, one way you can look at animals to find direction. The other one is like using animals to find water. If you're out in nature, you can look at how animals are behaving and see, oh, there's probably water in that direction. Yeah, there are two ways of coming at this. There's the the kind of very broad map making sense, which is all plants and animals have a relationship with water. We we know that, but if we if we kind of finesse that a little bit and think, okay, every animal will be found within a certain radius from water, and this this applies to every every animal and every landscape type. So if we think, for example, of if we turn it on its head, the Pacific Island navigators know how to find land by using birds which will only fly a certain distance from land. So there are certain birds like the frigate, for example, that will be found 70 miles from land and others like the boobies that will be found 40 miles from land down to the turns that are 20 miles from land. If we come back and flip that back on a land sense, the land becomes like the ocean and the water becomes like the island, as in certain animals will only be found a certain distance. So within within birds, what we find is that the corvid family get a lot of their moisture from the from the animals they feed off so they can be found a very long distance from water but seed feeding birds and other birds woodland birds like um pheasants things like that they 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 indicate water really quite close by because they won't range far from it but the the general principle is more important than the detail here because the details can change all over the world but the the, the patterns and the principle doesn't, which is every single animal you see is telling you something about the proximity of water. So that that's kind of one one very general principle that works all over the world and, and has, has saved people's lives uh, on countless occasions. The next is to look at individual behaviors and see if you can, can refine that map. So see if you can go from thinking, okay, there's definitely water within half a mile of here to thinking, okay, where is it? And there we, we can start to look at, at things like flight patterns. So a lot, a lot of birds will, will fly to, fly to water in the morning or at the end of the day. And I, I won't claim that I can do this routinely, although I do keep trying, but there are documented cases of people like the Aboriginals in Australia being able to tell whether a bird is coming from water or to water by the way it, it alights on trees. So if we kind of think of, um, you know, birds, even, even big birds don't, don't weigh much. Uh, it doesn't take much water to weigh them down. So, a bird that's coming from water will will effectively hop from trees because it's 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 lugging a great big tank of water with it, whereas whereas a, a thirsty bird that hasn't had any in the morning will take a direct flight path straight past all the trees in the direction of the water or or whatever it's whatever it's resting on. So yeah, there's a lot of signs, and as you said, the the, the key what you're what you're hoping people will do is they'll deliberately learn these things by reading it in your book, but then get out there and practice it so they get to the point where they can just see something. And they know what that means without having to think about it. Yeah, and I, I, all of my books, I, I try and uh, give people a real wealth, a, a large number. I mean, there are fifty-two keys in in the Nature Instinct, but realistically, I, I think of them slightly like characters in the sense that I can't predict who's going to get on with which one. If we kind of imagine we're going to a, a big house party and there are fifty-two people in it. The chances are, you know, you can get on really, really well with a, with a handful of them and a, a few of them are going to leave you cold. It's the same with these sorts of signs. And each of us has our, our interests from our experience and our preferences. So all I'm really doing is, is, is a, you know, hopefully a good introduction to 52 of these, these, these keys. And then it's, it, it's down to the individual to sort of say that. That really resonates with me. That's what I like. I am really into birds. Therefore, I'm going to look for this particular key. And then a relationship forms. 
it makes me sound incredibly dysfunctional talking about sort of signs and nature as, as sort of characters. And I, 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 I don't always manage to stop short of describing them as friends because it does feel like that when you, there are certain ones that it doesn't take long before you recognize them and you kind of feel a, you feel a kinship. It's kind of, yes, there you are. And, and, and because it's such a positive feeling that, that, that all sounds weird until you actually uh, get out there and try it. And then you'll know exactly what I mean. Yeah. It's always weird until you do it. Then it's not weird anymore. Well, Tristan, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Uh, thanks. I have a, a website, naturalnavigator.com, and I've been adding examples to that for, for over a decade now. So there are hundreds in there. There's information about, about, my, about my books. I've, I've written a few now. And again, I, I sort of, I'm coming at the same idea from, from, from different angles. I'm, I'm on a lot of the sort of uh, usual social media things, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. But yeah, I just in, encourage people to you know, pick one or two, keep, you know, having, having a bit of fun with them. And then instead of it feeling like you're, you're having to put stuff in, you, you just start getting given stuff back. And that's a, that's a, a really lovely moment. Well, Tristan Gooley, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. My guest today was Tristan Gooley. He is the author of the book, The Nature Instinct. It's available at amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, naturalnavigator.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash nature instinct. We find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcher Premium, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank Thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you not only listen to the AON podcast, but put what you heard into action. 